Hello, I'm Alec Avdikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. In the world of the 18th century, one comes across old histories that are either outdated or just plain inaccurate. Therefore, the focus of today's discussion is how to tackle misconceptions and myths that are not only damaging to history, but to society as a whole. The guest we have today is a public historian on YouTube, Brandon Fischella, more commonly known as Brandon F. I had an amazing time discussing with him about myths and misinformation that is found throughout history in general, as well as the 18th century history in particular. As a side note, before I begin with the discussion, you may have noticed that there is a small change to the title of the episodes. I made these discussions noted as bonus episodes, so they are not confused with the main scripted narrative that I am putting together. I am currently working on an undergrad, so I do not have time to sit down and write scripts, but I do have much more time for discussion episodes. I will eventually get to another scripted episode, but as of now, there will be one more conversation-based episode before I get back to a scripted episode. Also, I would love to hear feedback from social media, email, or Patreon members about my podcast and how I can improve it. Thank you all to those who are financially supporting me on Patreon, and I would love to see more people on there. If you would like to hear a special episode about Frederick the Great's sister, Wilhelmina, you can support me on Patreon. Or, if we reach 20 ratings on Apple Podcasts, I will release it as a bonus episode. But, back to the episode at hand. Brandon focuses on later 18th century history, usually the War of American Independence and the Napoleonic Wars. However, Frederick the Great was alive during the time of the American Revolution and even commented on it. Thank you so much, Brandon, for being on the show. It really means a great deal to me. Now with introductions out of the way, the next voice you will hear is my own, introducing Brennan Frischella. So today on the Life and Times of Frederick the Great, we have a very, very special guest. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, well, you're already uh, putting me on the spot, making me feel far more important than I have any right to feel. But my name is Brandon Fischella. I am a, as you could call it, a public historian. I talk about history nonsense on YouTube. And particularly, I like to discuss the American War of Independence and the Napoleonic Wars at the turn of, turn of the century. So a little bit later than the podcast is usually focusing on here. And then, of course, I also have a particular we say, drive to tackle and correct various historical misconceptions and what reenactors will call farvisms on the internet and such. Media reviews, talking about historically inaccurate games and movies and things like that. And that's me. All right. Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I do consider you a, a fairly good distributor of historical knowledge. So <laughs> I, I, appreci no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> But anyway, so first off the bat, uh, I had a question for you about just basics, how you got interested in history and uh, in the early modern period of history in general. Yeah. So I've really always been interested in history on the whole. I'd say a lot of it goes back to 
just like watching history documentaries with my grandfather, like growing up as a kid, you know, the history section of class was always the most interesting one to me. I remember like in fifth and sixth grade, sitting on the floor, crisscross applesauce with the textbook, just sort of like appreciating all the uniforms and the battle scenes. It's cool. I guess you could say it's like the classic line of progression for so many nerdy young boys. You go from trains to dinosaurs to army, and I just kind of never left the army stage. The same progression for me, by the way. Yep. It's, it's, I swear, it's like at least half the male population goes along something like that. The other half is like wrestling, and I don't trust those people. <laughs> but as far as my interest in early modern history is concerned, I mean, I always did enjoy it, but I wouldn't say that I had like a particular passion for it beyond, say, ancient history or 20th centuries. I was always like really big into Roman history and World War II, like every generic Midwestern child is. The early modern stuff in particular actually really began, I think, when a friend of mine started doing historical reenacting and he did American Civil War. And when he had his first event, I remember him coming back from that. I had never really heard of it as a concept, people like wearing the uniforms and marching around and shooting the guns and all that. And I thought it was like the coolest sounding thing ever. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds like so much fun. It's like you were there. It's like you were in one of the movies. Tell me more. Tell me about all of that. Like what was happening? And basically that's how I got the seed in my head that, ooh, I could do something like that too. And I was primarily interested in British history and British military history since yeah, around, again, like the fifth or sixth grade when we were talking about the American War of Independence. And they always portrayed the British as these robotic soldiers, sort of evil guys you see in the Patriot. And, you know, everyone likes the bad guys. The bad guys are more fun. And of course, you know, from there, it just becomes a steady process of unlearning everything that they teach you and realizing like, oh, it's actually a lot more nuanced and complicated than all that. But I was I was primarily, yeah, I was primarily interested in British military history. And the best way to do British military history reenact in my area was the American War of Independence. And so that's the time period that I launched myself into. I remember when I first got involved, I really didn't know much of anything about the war, its progression, the different battles where they were fought, the, the names that are involved in any of that, let alone, you know, so many of the particulars about how the British Army was fighting in North America and whatnot, which is like the really big thing that I harp on these days is that it wasn't just, you know, linear tactic as, tactics against uh, guerrilla warriors, Mel Gibsoning in the woods. I didn't know, you know, anything like that. And it was really getting into reenacting, which inspired me to start reading books about the topic and sort of exploring those themes, you know, and, and getting more of an interest in the time period. So it's kind of backwards in a way, I guess, that I started off with a very broad, vague, just general military history interest. And then because of reenacting, it, it kind of like pigeonholed me in a way, but it kind of led me down this path. And now as I learn more about it for reenacting, because I had the basis of the understanding, I, I you know a little bit about something, so you read more because you have the basis to understand it. And then when I started doing the YouTube thing where I initially was wearing my, what back when I was with the 23rd Royal Welsh Fusiliers, I would wear that uniform and talk about whatever I learned at the reenactment on camera. And so the people who started watching me started watching me because they liked 18th century stuff. And then it, you know, it just sort of carried on from there. You know, when I first started doing YouTube stuff, I actually always said that my real interest was more in late Victorian military history. But that sort of just got sent by the wayside as I went more and more into early modern. And now I'm very much like an early modern military guy. So ah, that's really interesting. No, I, I kind of had a similar experience with that. I picked up a, a book uh, in a like really huge former glove factory. It's it's not like this four-story bookstore up in Detroit. I just picked up a book about Frederick the Great, and I decided 
like right then and there. You know what? No, nobody has really done a full podcast about Frederick the Great, so I figured, why not? Why not do that? And then the slow descent into madness begins. Absolutely, right? you, you can't go wrong with insanity. It's it's one of my favorite things. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so going to uh, myths, this will be the main topic about today's episode. Why do you think there are so many myths in the popular memory concerning just 18th century history? I think that pretty much all of history has pretty major misconceptions, right? Be it ancient Rome or ancient Greece up to what happened yesterday, there's going to be plenty of, uh, of myth-making and legends and blah, 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 about, about everything, really. But when it comes to the 18th century, and especially in the United States, but I think a lot of the same principles can be applied for most of the Western world, the 18th century is a really interesting one in that the misconceptions and just our, our understanding of that time period in general has a much more direct impact, if you will, on our modern world, on our modern day lives, because it really is like the the birth of modernism, right? It's that you know the Enlightenment ideals of democracy and representation and redrawing political boundaries and all that. I mean, like it's towards like the the latter half and the end of the 18th century that all of these things really start coming to a head for obvious reasons. And so I think that people look to a lot of like the the maddening logic of the time period, everything from things that that are like that we consider to be like morally reprehensible today, you know, slavery, the treatment of women, just various imperial policies in general, things like that, alongside the absurdity to, to what we consider nowadays, the absurdity of 18th century medical thought and practices like, oh, he has a headache, bleed him, you know, th- that kind of thing. It's like everything that we see there in their physical reality, if you will, is so dramatically different from how we ourselves today conceptualize the world, how we understand things. But other elements like, you know, all people are created equal and, you know, the importance of having representation in government and all that kind of thing. Like all of those concerns feel very modern. They feel very present to us today. And we learn about that time period a lot of times in such a way that it is like the beginning of creating who we are, especially you get in the United States. It's like, it's the beginning of who we are. And yet in these other ways, it's so alien and foreign and different. And I think that that kind of opens up a lot of these possibilities for looking at those differences and ascribing it to more simple traits than maybe it should. I mean, especially with, again, the United, I'm sure this is the, the, the same thing. It's, you know, they probably have similar problems in France and Britain and Germany, but especially in the United States, it's, it's also the foundation of the nation itself. There's a lot of, as I'm sure you've run into before, like early and mid Victorian so-called historiography about the Revolutionary War, where like everyone wanted to tell their story about it. And so many of them are just so horribly wrong i agree with you 100 percent. sorry to bump in i just wanted no, no, to fine. say uh, i'm taking a class uh, an american revolutionary class and somebody said to me that we were taught that george washington was about equal in rank to jesus in, in america <laughs> yeah yeah that's about right i mean and the scary thing is that it used to be a lot worse as far as like the hero worship and whatnot. You know, the, the number of old colonial houses that I've been to where they're like, and this is our lock of George Washington's hair. It's like, oh, okay. All right. Um, calm down a little bit, maybe. I mean, it's, a, it's impressive, I guess, but like, it's also, it's kind of strange. Anyways. Yeah. I, I think if I were to like summarize it, I guess it's just like a lot of the myths of the 18th century and a lot of just the history of it in general 
has a much more direct impact on our lives today. And as such, it's just susceptible to more hot takes than you normally get. Like if someone has a hot take about ancient Rome, a friend of mine actually, he loves to tell me this story. It's like he had a conversation once with a friend of his about the Punic Wars and his friends were kind of like casually threw out to him like, yeah, man, imagine how different the Punic Wars would be if the good guys won. What are you talking about? The idea of having a moral comparison between ancient Rome and ancient Carthage, both massive militaristic slaving empire. Like it's an ancient empire. What are you talking about morality? But ultimately at the end of the day, him having that take that the North African slavers were better than the Italian slavers doesn't really have much of an impact on our day-to-day lives. Whereas misconceptions about the role of how like the American Revolution was all just a bunch of average everyday people with their personal firearms rising up against an evil, tyrannical, totalitarian king. I think that that kind of thing has a much more direct impact on our world today. You know, the number of times that you see quotes and misquotes and misattributions and misunderstandings about the logic of the founding fathers used today in both directions, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, like whatever. It's, I just think that because so many nations have such a pivotal foundational moment during this time period, you know, again, France with the revolution, Britain with the beginnings of their empire. It's like, because it's such a pivotal moment, it's so ripe for exactly this kind of nonsense. People using it for like cheap political points and whatnot. Wow, I'm really rambling on about all these questions, aren't I? We're gonna be here for a while. That's quite all right, hey. I, I find it so very interesting how, how you bring in the, the ideas of the enlightenment in there, especially with, well, if you wanna go the one of the largest influences for the founding fathers, like John Lockean philosophy, with Thomas Jefferson almost quoting him indirectly in, in the direct Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. No, I just think it's it's interesting that people can have such a misconception on something that plays such an important role. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it honestly goes to the idea of uh, civic education, too. Yeah, and more often than not, it is unfortunately neglected, it seems. At least in my experience. Yeah, same here. I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but uh, I student taught and I I asked a survey question to my students and I asked them a simple question of, is education worthwhile? Two students out of a class of about 15 said yes. Oh God. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I guess it's one, it's one thing when you're forced to sit there for like eight hours a day, waking up at 530 in the morning, but even still there's, there's something disturbing about that as a trend. So bringing up the idea of damage, as far as that goes, what myth widely held about the 18th century do you think is the most damaging to the society in general? Yeah. It's difficult to say which one would be the most damaging. I think that there are very firm arguments that could be made for a lot of different things. But what I would actually say is that it's no singular myth that is the most damaging, but it's the idea that people of the past, and, and this is applicable, honestly, to like most of human history, not just 18th century, but I think it's, again, just particularly strong in this time period because of everything that we talked about before. The idea that the people of the past were somehow lesser that they were like at their core level they were more immoral than we are that they were always being oppressed and that there was no happiness and joy love basically the idea that everyone was stupid back in the day oh like like i remember actually a relative of mine telling me about how they were enjoying watching game of thrones and sorry this is like a bit of a tangent but uh, and i they they asked me like oh brandon you would love it it's like so old and like kind of historical in a way i'm like 
it's just like too I used to be into the books, but honestly, I find George R. R. Martin's to be writing to be a little bit too negative. Like it's just so unhappy. Like I like to have people that I can root for. I'm okay with Grimdark. I'm okay with terror and evil and sadness and tragedy and blah blah blah. Like I like 40k, for example, and it's nothing but that. But at its core, if I were to see a story that becomes like really popular in the mainstream society, I'd rather I, I'd rather engage with things like Lord of the Rings, where like it, there is like a, a soulfulness to it. There's a triumph of good over evil, and there's a fight for what's right, and blah blah blah. I like that kind of thing. And I remember what their basic repl- response to that was was basically like, "Well, yeah, but that's not how it was back then." What are you talking about? Like, no, like, of course there was love and respect and maybe we don't hear about it as much because the only people are writing are the upper class and they have all these weird arranged marriages. They're the ones who are married, marrying for like, for the power and for family ties and whatnot. But like at the peasantry level, like I imagine that, well, obviously they had a different method of conceptualizing their relationships than we do today. They still genuinely loved each other and there were happy moments in their lives and they did what was best for them given their material circumstances. They weren't dumb, they weren't stupid, they weren't immoral, blah, 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 blah. And I think that there are just a lot of myths that that simultaneously rely on that flawed understanding and also reinforce it. Why were soldiers lining up and standing up and shooting at each other back and forth taking turns? Oh, well, because they were all stupid and their generals were arrogant, evil men who didn't care about killing poor people. Well, no, that's actually not how they were fighting at all, because, and none of that's true. Like, oh, well, why were they lopping off limbs left and right because of a little infection? Ah, probably because they were just too stupid to understand germ theory. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of those misunderstandings feed into that one central idea. And that central idea is deeply damaging in that when you're willing to believe that the world can be so simple as, oh, well, they're wrong, ergo, they're just stupid and we don't have to care about them. I mean, there's obvious implications to that, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Uh, I, I've found that if you take any long glance at primary sources of, of diaries, things like that, you find yourself drawn to the humanity of it all. And I think that's one of the reasons why Greek myths have continued to be so popular. I mean, you have Percy Jackson a decade ago. But yeah, just like because it speaks to those like more rooted human experience. You go back to like the earliest writing we had, like Epic of Gilgamesh and whatnot, and it's still talking about these like same, the same things that we talk about today in our stories, like more or less, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you go to uh, what's now Istanbul, you have graffiti by Varangian soldiers that have, uh, we'll, we'll call them Anderson. Anderson was here. The base nature of you know, these people were much the same as us in many different ways, for better or worse. I mean, obviously, there are different, you know, cultural and material factors which do change the outlooks, but at their core, they're still human at the end of the day. And, and it's for a similar reason, actually, that I what I find really interesting is looking at the primary sources, not necessarily of the good men, of the good people in a more objective fashion, like I'm willing to say at least that something like slavery is wrong across all time periods, regardless of those cultural factors. I won't necessarily say that people who supported it were all evil because it was a different culture and environment and blah, blah, blah. I would just say that they're not necessarily evil for supporting something which is evil. Anyway, that's my moralizing. We'll get that out of the way. But what I find most interesting is looking at the accounts of those people who are supporting those terrible things. Reading the account of 
the person who's literally like manning the slave ship going across the Atlantic, reading the account of the bomber who's dropping bombs on London, reading the accounts of these people who are doing things that we would today consider to be especially heinous and trying to understand how are they conceptualizing this? How are they thinking about it? Because even if they're wrong, and I think that we can all agree they were wrong, they got it wrong, still there is those, like you said, those elements of humanity that are bleeding through in the exact same way that they are for the people who are doing the right thing. Use a very loaded term there. I agree with you. No, I found that there's definitely uh, parallels between the discussion I had with Dr. Alexander Burns and you right now, because if you go to a history book from the 1940s, uh, I forget what the exact uh, his actual quote is, but he said that the Prussian army was the most stupid army in its character. But no, if if you look at it, the the people who were in the Prussian army were fairly literate for their time. And they were able to write letters back home. And all these letters are filled with human experiences and, and times of trouble. Yeah, I think honestly, like the biggest distinction is something that I do try to get at with a lot of my work is that it's okay to pass moral judgments on like things that have happened. Oh, they went into the town and they, and they burned it down. Like that was a bad thing that made the world a worse place. I'm okay with that. But what I think is very, very dangerous is when we begin making moral assessments willy-nilly on the people who are doing. I guess, in a way, it's basically just me saying the historical version of hate the sin, not the sinner. Mm. It's very, very difficult to understand the reasons behind people's actions and the cultural like triggers that make them happen. Uh, and that's honestly, I think, what like what a lot of history is, is attempting to understand the world of the past so that we can conceptualize the actions of the past, as well as, of course, just better understand those actions, because a lot of times the actions are misunderstood to start with. And when we achieve that sort of thing, it, it gives you a better idea, a better glimpse as to the nature of humanity, which, of course, as well, can really help us out today, because all the time, like, oh, well... Why did Senator such and such vote for that? Oh, because he's a moron. Well, maybe that's the case for a lot of senators, but let's pull back. Maybe there's more behind all of this. You know, it's just a... Yeah. Anyways, I'm sorry. I, I like to get on my high horse. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm just a YouTuber. My, one of my last videos was just like rambling about the Royal Marines and their history. I, I, I shouldn't be so uh, high-minded as all this, but I think you get that. No, 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 no. We can be as high-minded or as low-minded as you want. All right. That's perfectly all right. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That works. So speaking back to myths in general, what's your favorite myth to go? Well, actually, no, here's what actually happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, I get like definitely just to harp on like that same idea. It's definitely those smaller, like lower level myths that feed into bigger ideas. It's the most common questions I like would get whenever I, whenever I'm at a reenactment. I think that those are the most entertaining and interesting to explore. You know, people ask, oh, well, you know, why are you wearing that bright red coat? Doesn't that make you a bigger target? If you don't have, like, the cultural as well as material understanding of, like, of linear warfare and how it was fought and why it was fought the way it was, then on that first glance, the idea of these soldiers marching around in bright, colorful uniforms with giant hats, and it's like, that's so stupid. Like, we have camouflage for a reason nowadays. Well, the reason why they wore red, we could talk about the actual reason, you know, new model army, blah, 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 really quickly. 
And then like connecting that myth to the bigger idea. I'll try to use the red coat as an avenue to talk about the nature of linear warfare and how it was more complicated than we normally give it credit for. Same thing with, oh, well, all soldiers were just like drunkard thieves and murderers and whatnot. It's like, well, no, that, that's a common misconception. Let's talk about the reality. And what does that mean for this time period? What does it mean for the foundation of the country? Blah, blah, blah. You know, why soldiers fought in lines, all that stuff. Because like on their own, honestly, these myths, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of reenactors don't fully grasp the idea here. A lot of these smaller level myths on their own, independently, they really don't matter, do they? Again, if the average person's walking around being like, oh yeah, the British wore red to high blood, that, that doesn't really like impact the modern world in any meaningful way. But I think that the logic that brings people to those conclusions, that is what's damaging. And that, I think that honestly, whenever historians, be they public historians, academic historians, gossip, whatever, whenever we talk about myth, and and myth making and bad historiography and everything that's what really ought to be tackled like that's what you're trying to get at the actual myth is merely a means to reach that deeper um information that deeper understanding if that makes sense absolutely yeah so uh, bring back critical thinking yeah yeah basically exactly so one of your most famous uh, YouTube series is the in-depth review of the Patriot. I knew you're probably dreading that, but it's, it's, I think it's a very important film to tackle as far as historical fallacies, inaccuracies. So Mel Gibson is very big in this particular film. It's based on the Swamp Fox of Francis Marion. Why don't you take us into a brief understanding of why you wanted to review this uh, movie in depth. Well, it's actually like a really great little transition because you, you get me on my high horse talking about the importance of combating this and getting to the deeper ideas, blah, blah, blah. And then I have by now probably a five hour long review going into every nitty gritty little detail about the Patriot, um, <laughs> which doesn't necessarily always address those deeper concerns, to be sure. A lot of times it can be rather silly. In the last Patriot review, I actually wore a tinfoil cocked hat to talk about uh, conspiracy, you know, oh, Mel Gibson, <laughs> you know, globalist conspiracy. It was a joke. It was like all, it was all a bit. Because that, that series is, I think, at its core inherently at least a little bit silly with how specific I get. Like, the choreography of a fight scene doesn't necessarily reflect everything that really matters, at least not in such detail as I get into it. But alongside it being just like fun, you know, using that entertainment value to try and get people into those bigger ideas. Like, if there's like a 20 minute long video, and I use 15 minutes of it being like entertaining and fun and poking fun and being pedantic and silly. And then trying to use that to drive up excitement in a popular audience to like in that last five minutes hit home with like the stuff that really does matter. I consider that to be a success. I think that nuance is missed on a lot of people, unfortunately, but for the, for the people that it isn't missed on, like that's the core, that's my audience. That's what I'm trying to get at. When it comes to the Patriot in particular, not only is it so hilariously bad, like not even just historically inaccurate, it's just bad in so many ways. It's like such a crudely written story, poorly acted, poorly, you know, directed and the music, even the music, they got like, what is it, like Steven Spielberg or whatever, some big name. Even the music is so repetitive and lame and just, oh, that's going to be a whole other video. Anyways. But alongside all that is a lot of times I get comments where people will say to me like, well, Brandon, 
shut up about this movie already. We get it. You don't like it. It's only a movie. It's only meant to be entertaining. Which is such a nonsense argument. Like, okay, yes, the movie is only meant to be entertaining, and as such, I can't complain about it at all. And, of course, because it's only entertainment, that means it has no cultural impact whatsoever. That's why movies like The Birth of the Nation and Triumph of the Will don't really matter, because, oh, it's just a movie! They don't have an impact. Yeah, right. Yeah. I kind of want to, like, one day make, like, a little mini film where it's a World War II flick, but then at the end of the day, it's revealed that, like, the Germans are the good guys, and, like, Hitler comes in and gives, like, a rousing speech about how the glory of the German, like, like, basically just, like, something that ends in, like, Nazi propaganda. But then at the end, it's like, oh, hold on, you can't be offended by this. It's never claimed to be historically accurate. I mean, sure, I'm using real people's names and real places and real environments, but it's not historically accurate. This is only entertainment, and as such... I'm completely lifted of any burden of truth to this. That's basically the argument that people make to me is, oh, it's only a movie. It doesn't matter. I, uh, and people who say that, I think they have not had as many conversations as I have had with members of the American public, for example, at reenactments or hearing stories about school children actually being shown this movie. I was, I was one of those school children, oh by the God, way. It, that is, if that isn't like the most disgusting thing, then I don't even know what is. <laughs> It's it's like it's like showing Germans Frederick de Grossa, you know, to oh link it back gosh, to your yeah. topic. It's like, yeah, there's no ulterior motive with this movie at all. I'm sure this is completely historical. <laughs> um, it's like, oh god, that last scene where Frederick is like sitting in the church and talking about how, like, oh, if only one day some hero will rise to finish my work, and then it's like, I wonder who that hero could be. Oh, Anyways, it, it couldn't it couldn't be a man who has a first uh, first name that starts with A. Couldn't be. No, 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 no. Of course not. Only entertainment. It's only entertainment. You can't, you can't and, complain. Yeah. But um, you know, like all these conversations with people who will ask me, like, "Oh yeah, like um, the British were like burning down churches and everything. Why are you portraying them when they were like murdering people so willy nilly?" Or you know, "Oh, they were fighting in lines because they were stupid." Not only does it all feed into those classic myths and everything, but I'll just pull up an example, a very recent example, actually, very, very recent, that I was actually thinking about making a quick little video about just as a way to vindicate myself and say to all those naysayers, ha, I told you, I was right, I was right all along. If you follow the war in Ukraine at all, there is a certain Russian paramilitary company or uh, state-sponsored terrorist, maybe a more appropriate turn of phrase, called Wagner Group or Wagner Group, however, you, however they pronounce it, I don't really care mm -hmm. too much, but they're Russian mercenaries. They do some pretty na nasty stuff, and they recently, like literally, uh, like within the last couple of weeks, I think, released a recruitment ad in English targeting ex-American servicemen and women. Well, primarily servicemen because you know it's Russia; they're not woke. They only need manly, masculine men. Targeting ex-American servicemen, and in that ad, they're going off on a whole bunch of what I would identify as like QAnon type stuff. And it, it hits all the classic points that are always used to attract ex-military to a cause. They promised you you were fighting for freedom, but you weren't fighting for that at all. You've been betrayed on the home front by this, this, that, and the other. It's kind of vague as to who is the one doing the betraying, you know, and whatnot. It hits all those pluses. Stab in the back. Yeah, stab in the back myth. And literally, and in that advertisement... They talk about something along the lines of, like, this isn't what the Founding Fathers intended, and guess what movie they pull a clip from to show that bit up? They show Mel Gibson on his knees looking up as one of the Continentals is running forward with the American flag oh from that last triumphant moment in The Patriot. 
if that doesn't just prove my point like resoundingly well, I don't think that anything could. So Russian propaganda quoting yep. a patriot. Oh my goodness. Now, now to be fair, this same ad also pulled movie scenes from like Terminator and whatnot. So maybe I am being like a little dramatic, but honestly, I think that there's a point there is that this film is genuinely providing the ammunition for how a certain portion of the American population views themselves, their country, their relationship with the government and the world as a whole. And I think that that's genuinely really dangerous, not getting into modern day politics, but I, I, I think that that's pretty heckin' dangerous, you know? Wow, I can just skip that question because that's probably the, the misinformation, the, uh, the blatant targeting of the patriotic feelings of America, that's probably the biggest challenge you've come up against. Yeah, honestly, it is it, the, the biggest challenge, I think, is genuinely just people who, and, and I've, I'm guilty of this on occasion, I'm sure you are as well, everyone is, you know, you, you enjoy a certain time period of history, you get certain opinions about it, and you feel passionate about it, and things that mm. go against that understanding they can at first, you know, like you, you maybe feel like an emotional response to it. I know I certainly do. I think everyone does to some level and being a good academic is being able to get over that, I think. But I think that it's just people who feel deeply personally attached and personally offended by what they perceive to be a slight against their history. I mean, I won't harp against uh, like nothing but Americans here. I've even had British service people leave angry comments on my videos because they feel that I'm like disrespecting their history or that I'm like misrepresentation representing uh, like history that isn't mine. I'm just some stupid American who doesn't understand blah, blah, blah. I'm like, have you like seen my set? Like what I'm going for here? If you think that I am out to like defame the British military and like defame the British nation, like you've not been paying attention because I am crazy, but in the exact opposite direction a lot of times, like it's, like, it, like, if I dare to mention, you know, if I dare to mention in a video about the American War of Independence, I'm like, hey, maybe the British have a point. I'm evil. I'm a traitor. I'm literally a traitor who should probably be shot. On the other side of things, if I dare to mention that, like, not everything about the British Empire was hunky-dory and, like, yeah, actually, a lot of Indians didn't have a good time. Well, then I'm, I'm misrepresenting history. I'm evil. I'm terrible. I'm just an American who's trying to influence their blah, blah, blah. It's like, you can't win no matter what because people get so personally invested in this stuff. And I think that that really is like one of the biggest problems facing all of history, honestly. Yeah, I've definitely come up with that as far as student teaching. You'd hear parents say, uh, what, what are you going to be teaching? And I'd say... I'm going to be teaching history. And nine out of 10 times, people are going to say, well, you better be teaching those kids right. Yeah. You better teach what I understand to be history, which is to say the historiography that's like 30 years yeah. outdated by now. Well, I mean, yeah, people have this idea that like, oh, history doesn't change. History has changed so much. And, and I mean, the growth of academic yeah. history as a field is, is fairly new. I, I have a historiography class I'm going on and, uh, he talks about the history of how the academic branch broke off from popular history. And a lot of times that's just never taught. And I, I feel like if, if people understand that there's always going to be some kind of bias 
because human hands are imperfect. I, I recently had a conversation where somebody told me that if, if you're going to be talking for four hours, then at one point in time, you're going to say something stupid. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just that's just the human reality of it all. Yeah, absolutely. It's like like nothing is ever going to be 100% accurate and correct, no matter what the project is, no matter who the historian is. Yeah. So one last concluding thing. There was there was one episode I had that was about the execution of Hans Hermann von Kata in front of Frederick the Great. And I just left it there. So mm -hmm. to rectify that, I would like to finish up this episode with uh, your favorite silly story in history. <laughs> silly story. Um... There's a lot of classics, though. I think I honestly, I think that most like primary sources will have amusing moments in them that are a lot of fun, and you know you're reminded of every once in a while because you read some other story that reminds you of it. But in the the memoirs of Joseph Plum Martin, Continental Soldier during the American War of Independence, he tells like a lot of ghost stories. He seems like really kind of like superstitious at times, and he talks about how like it was something along the lines of I remember right of like this guy who was standing out sentry one day and he like ran in like it ran into the barracks like terrified white as a ghost it was like during winter quarters like swearing like oh my god like i saw like i saw like a, the pale horse i saw death i saw a spirit of some demon like i'm free like something happened and all the guys are like whoa hold on like what are you talking about what happened so they all run out to investigate what this was and they find up in some, like in one of the buildings or whatever, it's like just like some random pony that's like munching on some grass. It's, like, it's something like completely innocuous. And there's there's a number of moments like that in Joseph Plum Martin's memoirs. Like, I think there's another one where like some like sentry sees like some kid walking down the street and he becomes convinced it's a spirit because like the kid was pale. Something like that. I, I remember like vague stories like that. I'm sure if you go into the account, you can find all sorts of great stuff. There's one moment where he like passes out and like, hallucinates about a tree it's great <laughs> if you haven't read joseph plum martin then i would encourage everyone go and check it out because it's a really really cool resource a lot of great stuff yeah i'm gonna put in a, a link if i can to his, his memoir oh yeah 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 awesome another like one of my favorite accounts just like in general to read through because i think the writer is very very talented he was definitely writing for a more popular audience so i think that he kind of trumps some stuff up at times but i still think that it's a really really solid account very emotional very well written and whatnot is the writings of George Robert Glyde. And the one in particular that I'm thinking of right now is uh, basically his account of the British expedition to burn down Washington and then fight in New Orleans during the War of 1812. He fought in Spain with Wellington's army, and he has a book about that, and then he has a book about his stuff in North America. And he, as like a land soldier, going to all these like new environments, just like talking about the with wonderment about like the things that he's seeing, like he'll have in this military accounting, he'll have like pages and pages just talking about like the mountains and the rivers and the weird fish that he sees. And just like reading through that is really cool. Not very silly, but it's really cool. One of the things that he was talking about that I had never heard of before, but apparently is still a thing today, was King Neptune's court. And apparently this goes back to the early 19th century, like late 18th century, at least. When a ship was crossing the Meridian I don't know what any of the like geological science terms are, but like when they cross over like halfway across the world or like whatever, the the sailors and the men who were doing so for the first time, they get to go before King Neptune's court or King Poseidon, or I think it might be Poseidon or Neptune, whatever. But they go before one of the one of the court. 
And literally what they do on this, again, like 18th century ship, early 19th, is one of the sailors dresses up like the ancient god. He wears like a beard of rope and he has like this makeshift really weird trident looking thing. And they give him like a little makeshift throne that he sits on and they bring all of the, all of like the new blood basically before him. And he like gives them sentences and they like douse them with seawater and they do all this like wacky weird, like basically it's just like navel hazing. And since then I've actually been sent like articles and like images from people before like, oh yeah, I remember when I did that. Like it's a, it's still a thing. Like, and I had never heard about this. It's the weirdest, stupidest, I shouldn't say that because the Navy guys will all get after me, but like, it's so funny. Um, and then, and realizing that like, that's still a truth. Like at first I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? Like, what a weird thing. Why is this ship doing, is this even real? Like, like what's going on here? Who is this crazy eccentric captain that he allows this nonsense to take place on a Royal Navy vessel? No, apparently it's like across the board. This is just like a thing that people do. Uh, that, brings, that brings me to a uh, Fiddler on the Roof quote and where he goes, you may ask, where did this tradition get started? I don't know. I yeah. don't know, but it's a tradition. It exactly. It's so, it's so good. And I think that a lot of, honestly, entertaining historical stories come from exactly that kind of thing. It's like, well, one day, you know, Farmer Joe lost a wheel of cheese. It fell down the hill. He ran after it, cracked his neck open, and everyone thought it was a great laugh. So now we do it every year. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Okay. Okay. I just thought of a really good one, actually. See, this is what I was talking about, realizing things after I've already told the actual story that I was meant to tell. I think it, I forgot what town it was in. It's like some town in like Cambridgeshire or something like that. But occasionally when I go out to the UK, I do Napoleonic era reenactment with the Coldstream Regiment of Foot Guards, 1815. And they do like a little history, like heritage festival parade thing in this town. And the big feature of this parade is that we, as a military escort, paraded a giant puppet of a bull through the city streets. And I'm like, what the heck is going on with this? Apparently, the reason why they parade a bull puppet through the streets is because way back when in like the Middle Ages or whatever, a bull got loose from like the Lord's Manor and it was running rampant through the streets, destroying everything. And so the local Lord put together like a bounty and like a mob and he's like, hey, everyone, catch the bull and I'll give you like and, and I'll give you a bounty or whatever. And, and so they chased it down, they slaughtered the thing and then they all ate it. Apparently, everyone thought that was a lot of fun. There's probably... Here's the thing. Here's the dangerous thing is there's probably a lot of myth behind this as well. What's the actual reality? I don't know. But this is at least the story that has generated this tradition now. It became a tradition, apparently, that at least a number of years afterwards, probably. But basically where what the town people started doing is they would do like a run of the bulls, but in reverse. They would release a single bull in the streets that they would then chase down and slaughter in the streets. And then they would have like a feast. And I think it was like early Victorian. It was like 1820s or something like that. This actually is more of a real history. Like regardless of how it got started, it's a thing that they were doing. And sometime in like the early Victorian era or whatever, basically like church leaders and the government and like this idea of like moral government was starting to come about. And so they all got together and they're like, maybe having all the peasants running through the streets and like joyfully slaughtering and maiming an animal isn't the best for like, public health and safety and morality. And so they put the kibosh on it. They said, hey guys, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And of course, being a bunch of English peasants, they're like, you can't tell us what to do. We're going to do it anyways. And so they sent in the military to literally guard the bull and they kept it 
in like the local cathedral. They locked it up in the cathedral and there was a military guard to protect the bull. In more recent years, more recent history, the town decided to bring back the tradition, not with actually a real bull slaughtering, but with just a fake bull that they parade through the city streets. And at the end of the parade, it's led up ceremoniously, or actually in previous years, they shot the bull, they shot the bull with blank rounds with the reenactment group. The year that I did it, they decided, right, even that's a little bit violent. Maybe we'll have like a ceremonial type thing. And so we paraded the bull to the cathedral steps. We formed up on either side of like the gate. The bull was led through. We, they closed the gate and we were standing there as guard with our muskets against the mob of people who were following us. They led the bull up the steps into the cathedral. And then there was like a laser light show projected onto the cathedral telling the story of the bull. And it's like, that was one of the coolest re like reenacting experiences that I'd ever had. I think that's a really fun story to tell. Again, regardless of how the tradition of the bull thing got started, that's how it ended. And I think that's yeah, really that's cool. that's a heck of a way to finish an episode. So th thank you so much, uh, Brandon, for for being on this podcast, and I really just appreciate your time and coming here to talk about history. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate you having me on board, sir. Thank you so much for the invite. All right. Thank you so much. I'm glad we could finish the conversation on a positive note. Once again, I must thank Brandon for agreeing to be on my show. You're one of the nicest people I've met, and I must admit that I fanboyed a little bit when I saw you respond to my email. Thank you, Brandon, and thank you all for listening to us talk about tackling these kinds of myths. As a way to know that I am a true Brandon F. fan, I can conclude in only one way, and that is to say, Jose!